DJ, PK, and David Locke joining us. David brought to you by Murdoch Chevrolet. During the month of May, get 0% APR for 84 months, no payments for 120 days, or until January 2021 on the 2020 Silverado, Equinox, or Trax models. Go see the guys at Murdoch Chevrolet in Woods Cross or Logan. David, good morning. Good morning. How are you? Excellent. And you? I'm good. PK, I have... um, I, I... I um uh, I made a mistake and and booked a tea time on Sunday, which is Mother's Day. So if you need one Sunday, I got one over at Wasatch <laughs> Mountain. That's not going to get used. So if you need a tea time Wednesday, let me know or Sunday, let me know. I'll have to I'll have to check because when your wife's a golfer, that that can right. uh, work out well. Right. Yeah, my wife is a golfer too. She plays nine holes with me and my daughter, and then leaves because she doesn't think that the game should go for longer than nine holes. She thinks it's way excessive to be 18. Some days I agree with her, and some days I wish it was longer, and obviously that is determined by the quality of my play. (laughs) Right. Well, you know, no one thought you were complicated. (laughs) Really? So PK (laughs) dropped a a little something there on Twitter that got people fired up, and I Uh think it's... What was that? Well, I think it's really simple that people love to loathe the Lakers and they hate Kobe, and I don't think it takes very long to explain it. But, PK, go ahead and tell them, uh, tell them what you put out there and why, and then tell them the uh, feedback you got. As I was watching on television, uh, they on uh, Fox Sports uh, LA or whatever it's called, West, and they had Kobe, and it was after he retired, so he's sitting there, and they're reviewing his top ten moments as a Laker, and uh, they would have the Jazz 60-point. In fact, there was one, <laughs> I meant to text you on that, but uh, in that game, uh, I think it was, you were sitting courtside, I, th- well, I know you were sitting courtside, but I know it was that game, because... Uh, He goes over to Shaq, who's sitting in the first row, and there are you taking a picture. (laughs) You can can see you. You look like you got your camera phone out. So they got that, and they got the uh, uh, number one. It was the 80, what was it, 81 points against Toronto. And so he's talking about it. And then they have some Laker greats like Kareem, you know, uh, Magic, talking about just the desire that Kobe had to, to get the best out of his ability. And that Achilles game where he comes back, shoots the free throws, and then limps off and all that stuff, right? It's very dramatic, and obviously he was always a great interview. And as I'm watching this, I'm um, juxtapositioning it with the last dance stuff. So I put out a tweet that I thought was obvious, that, 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 that Jordan, you got Jordan there playing the two-guard or swing guy, small that swing position that they play. And I put that Kobe is there close by, meaning you got Jordan one, you got Bryant two. There's a separation there, but in my mind, that's the two that I put at those positions. And I got a ton of blowback, and we talked about it here, and I'm getting it as we speak. I didn't think there was anything to say about that. I thought it was obvious. Jordan one, Kobe two. Um, so the other candidates would be Dwayne Wade, Jerry West, Oscar Robertson, depending what position you put him at. Who else? Drexler. Yeah, Kobe surpasses Drexler by a mile. Yeah, but you were just asking for. Candidates. I mean, I think placing Kobe historically is an interesting concept. Um, you have the five titles, though Shaq is the driving force, you know. Um, 
he ends up having a few years where he plays with terrible teammates and they're terrible. Um, you know, he doesn't, you know, that now there aren't a lot of players in the history of the league that um, are able to propel a team that has bad teammates, but those teams were bad. Um, he was a terrible teammate. Like nobody ever wanted to play with him again. Um, he was, you know, the number I always kind of think is really relevant is the all NBA number. Um, because it's the best way. I know it's voted on and it's got, but it's pretty accurate and it's a way to judge eras. You know, when you start talking about like, in, and so for someone like Stockton, that's unfortunate because he was only all NBA twice in his entire career. It's two years magic was out. Um, but Kobe is like all NBA 15 times. And I think 13 of them are first team. Like that's pretty real. Like, um, that one's pretty hard to like we get Reggie Miller, by the way, would be another name, but, um, and then, you know, there's just the, the element that he was, you know, for all of his scoring, he was pretty inefficient. Um, and, you know, particularly late in his career was, was super inefficient. Um, but that was kind of a weird, you know, end of his career when he just, you know, was jacking 20 shots a night, shooting 37% was, you know, that's, that's a little hard to swallow. Um, so, I mean, I think you're probably right that he's the second best. Dwayne Wade's an interesting, an interesting kind of Kobe Dwayne Wade discussion. I think it's interesting. Um, and then I don't know, you know, cause Oscar, where are you putting Oscar? Probably as a point guard. Um, and so you, so it's not, it's, you don't have to do it. I'm definitely putting Oscar at the point, And I think that the thing that uh, Wade and Kobe have in common is they're both excellent players. That's not debatable. But if you just go to the winning at the highest level, you know, getting to the finals and winning championships, they both spent a pretty good chunk of their prime playing on mediocre to bad teams. And they both got to win early in their career because they had Shaq. And they both got to win late in their career now, you know, Gasol um, and uh, LeBron, uh, you know, so when they got a better teammate alongside them, in the case of uh, Dwayne Wade, I think he's going to be behind Kobe on the list because he had fewer titles and he got a better teammate for the second go-round of the championships. Nobody argues that LeBron is better than Gasol. So Yeah, and he had eight, um, you know, eight all-NBAs versus 15 is a big difference. Yeah. Those Laker teams, by the way, that um, won the title, kind of unseating the um, Celtics, the Boozer, Darren, oh yeah, um, AK forty-seven Jazz teams. I, I feel like those teams have gotten those Laker teams have gotten dismissed. They're pretty good, right? I mean, you go look at that roster, and um, that was like that 0708 Laker team that wins the title over Boston. They kind of roll through the playoffs. They sweep the Nuggets. They take the Spurs in five. They beat us in six. This is the closest series they play. And, like, that team was great. And you got Kobe at 29, Lamar Odom, who was the number one high school player in the country and a top five pick at 28, Gasol at 27. You know, Bynum's a baby, doesn't know what he's doing. But that was a that was a pretty good basketball team. Yeah, and you have Phil Jackson, too. The, yeah, right, and you got one of the great coaches of all time. It's probably the greatest male coach of all time. 
I got asked the greatest basketball coach of all time the other day, and I went Gino Oriyama. Any complaints? Uh, you're talking about any level? Yeah, I just got asked, what's the greatest basketball coach of all time? I thought about it for a while. I came up, you know, I think Wooden obviously has that run. But then Gino Oriyama's kind of created an entire game. Yeah, the problem with right, get, but, uh, with, uh, with saying that about a college coach is that when you get the upper hand in recruiting, John Wooden, for whatever reason, when you get the upper hand in recruiting, it can get so lopsided. I mean, the gap, the talent gap, can right. just be massive. So, you know, is it really coaching? Now, it is the definition of college coaching because every college coach is their own GM. Uh, but to say any coach at any level, I mean, it really is apples and oranges between the colleges. I and had, the uh, I had a, a, one, a person who was in women's basketball years ago explain this to me as to why there was two or three dominant uh, women's teams in college basketball and you, you put Pat Summon in that list and this person mm-hmm. said that and it's gotten better I would think uh, and this is when I was covering a lot of women's college basketball and uh, said to me that there's not that many great players in women's basketball and because women aren't wired the way men are where's my playing time where's my shots they're more interested in the experience of it. And I always loved covering women's basketball and watching the benches because it seemed like they were having the time of their lives when their team was winning. And it wasn't about where's my shots, where's my playing time. They were happy to be in the moment with their teammates and that people like Ariema and Summit, they're able to get the high-level players who didn't care if they had five or six other great players. They wanted to be on that team. So dynasties were easier to build in women's basketball because they were getting all the best players and the best players weren't spread out because women didn't, it didn't matter to them that uh, they got 30 shots in high school and now they only maybe get 10. They wanted to be a part of it. And so that allowed those two those programs and, and Stanford obviously has been really good over the years too, uh, and there's more than just a couple. And now we got Baylor and Notre Dame, and we all know who the teams are. Uh, that they were able to build them because women wanted to be a part of that, and they didn't care necessarily about their shots. Whereas the men, you just wouldn't have that. So, I, what I think, I, I think that's interesting. The reason um, that I had Oriyama on that list in my mind is he. They're getting beat now, and he's actually created the environment that's getting him beat. Like, to me, that's kind of the ultimate, right? When you've elevated the whole entire sport to a level that they now can beat you. So I think you're right. I now think there's enough talent because of what they've built. Yeah. Um, or at least this it's was 15 years I'd ago. Have to talk to somebody. I'd have to talk to Ashley Battle or one of the players who was the you know seventh player or sixth player at UConn and see if they agree with that. I mean, um, But I think it's, I mean, I, that that was why I actually chose that. It's like I was decide, you know, you're trying to decide between Pop and Phil. And then I kind of thought about on the other level that, you know, here's this guy who's actually elevated the entire sport to now catch him. David Locke joined us here on 97.5 and 1280 The Zone. Uh, so one other thing to hit you up here. Uh, we were discussing Rudy Gobert, his impact on the offense, 
Uh, you know, the Jazz are going to have a decision to make in another year and not quite a half, depending on when free agency is, whether it stays in July <laughs> 1 or it moves later. You know, a Supermax contract is just a massive commitment. And you start writing checks for $30, $35, $40 million, and the Supermax number can move for multiple reasons. But the point is, it'll be an enormous deal. And so, but the game is changing, you know, so you're deciding, is this the way the team needs to be built to win in 2024? You know, what at 2025, what is the game going to look like then? And, and basically, the question comes down to, do you need to play five out? Do you need to have five three-point shooters? And then we started discussing the question, well, um, it was something you brought up on the air here, that uh, you know, the number one thing every coach wants is dunks, and nobody gets more dunks than Rudy. So does Rudy create more open three-pointers than adding a fifth three-point shooter would create? And are there any numbers on that? Recognizing the Jazz, it'd be easier if the Jazz had a backup center who shot threes so we could compare. But, and you can't really do that, no matter, you know, the Jazz just don't have that. So when you hear that, what do you think, what do you know, and what do you guess? Um, I mean, I think the answer on if you're trying to get more threes is you just have to be willing to take contested threes at this point. So that that's really what it comes down to. You have to have a philosophy where the contested three to you is an okay shot, right? So that's you know if you look at the teams that are taking the most threes, they're willing to take contested threes, um, and that's a difficult decision. Like it's kind of contrary to everything you do as a team. You try to move the ball and get better shots and get you know good to great. And if you're in some point, you're deciding that um, you know Houston and Dallas are kind of deciding that they're willing to take you know good. And particularly Minnesota. I mean, Minnesota just decided they were willing to take 43s a game and hit 33% of them. Like, they took terrible shots. Um, but that's their philosophy. Um, so, all right, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, the game is evolving. Um, I, um, boy, there's a lot to unpack there. So, all right, the game's evolving. I'm of the viewpoint that they're still the number one thing, and what Milwaukee is doing is denying the rim. Um, they've completely just committed to denying the rim at a level that's never been done before in the league. And statistical research shows that defenses determine the amount of shots at the rim, and offense determines the amount of threes. So as a defense, what you can do is take away the rim. There's nobody better in the world at doing that than Rudy. Um, and at some point along the way, teams are going to play five out, and you're going to have to decide the way Milwaukee has that you're willing to let people shoot threes. So Milwaukee, and actually this is the big change that took place this year in the NBA, is that the, in the years past, you could deny both the rim and the three. This year, that's not true anymore. There's only one team in the NBA that's in the top five at denying shots at the rim and denying threes, and that's the Jazz. And there's only one other team that's in the top ten at denying shots at the rim and denying threes, and that's Oklahoma City. Um, I got to use prep right there that I never got to use. Um, if you look at the top teams that defend the rim, here's what they rank in just denying shots from three. 28th, 12th, 21st, 5th. 30th, 24th, 29th, and 22nd. So you now have to make a choice defensively 
of which you want. And if I actually take that even further to the top 15, the fascinating one is I believe that all bottom 10 teams in denying the three are in the top 13 or 14 in defending shots at the rim, like across the board. They're all there. 21 through 30, I think, are all on that list. So that's the biggest change in the league. The offenses have gotten too good. The floor is spread too far. You can't deny both, which I think makes Rudy more valuable. Part two of that is that if everyone's denying the rim, then I'm of the belief that those players that are unique enough to be able to get to the rim or on top of the rim are actually more valuable. So while Rudy's dunks are down from a year ago per game, he's still the leader in the NBA at dunks, and he is making the defense collapse to the rim to be able to try to deny him the shot that they're most focused on denying, which is his role to the basket. And so, um, you know, we have to get better at driving and passing out to other shooters and creating another opportunity out of that if Rudy's not available rather than taking the low percentage floater. The difficulty, sorry, there's just a ton to unpack here. The difficulty there is if you actually dig into the numbers, which are pretty interesting, and look at how many passes from the paint to three-point shots there are. Um, They're done by most guys that are 6'6 and 6'5 and 6'7 and Russell Westbrook at 6'4", and particularly strong. So we're asking Mike Conley and Donovan Mitchell at six foot one to make a pass that's very difficult for them. Um, and that's, you know, that'll have to evolve, figure that out. Um, but I think, Rudy, I actually am of the belief that as the game is evolving, while it feels like the things that Rudy does are being mitigated, he's so elite at them that I actually think they're making Rudy more valuable because he's one of the only ones in the world who can actually do that. Whereas the average center, absolutely. If you have a guy who's a roller but can't really get on the rim, you should have a stretch five. If you have a five who can't really defend at the rim, you might as well play Robert Covington. Um, and so, But Rudy's so elite that I think he does both those. Then the last part of that equation is the max contract and that's a whole discussion and it's not my money um but i would remind us what market we're in i'm good (laughs) okay there it is david like that was very concise because you're right i hesitated to ask that question that late in the interview but we had said earlier we were going to earlier in the week and i didn't want to let everybody down and i uh honestly i really wanted to hear your answer personally so thanks for doing that, David. <laughs> I think it's a fascinating debate. Um, I think the question is, to me, the question is, what are you putting behind Rudy? So do you need to have in your other 14 minutes a night a three-point shooter, somebody who does something differently, or should you actually just be consistent for your all 48 minutes? And then the flip side is, the, if you're going to super match Rudy, you're not paying more than a million dollars for that last piece. And you should never pay more than much more than a million dollars for a backup center, actually. He's David Locke. He's here every week, and he is brought to you by Murdoch Chevrolet on 97.5 and 1280 The Zone.